Thank you, worship team, for leading us. And we, if you are weren't here with us last week when we started, we started a new series last week that's actually based on the book by John Ortberg called The Life You've Always Wanted. And there are books available in the back, uh, in the lobby. You can pick one of those up. There's also uh, reading guides. So last week we covered chapter one, but we're going to take about two weeks to cover this second chapter um, because I want to lay a a little bit of a foundation, and we probably won't get into a lot of what he covers uh, in the book today. But we're going to be in this series from now until August, even though um, this will not be the only thing we talk about between now and August. But Ultimately, this is a book about spiritual disciplines and how to use spiritual disciplines to develop a more intimate relationship with God. Uh, Last week, we talked about the hope of transformation and that we are not who we were created to be, that we are not even who we want to be, that we all fall short. We love God too little. We love sin too much. We have this sense of disappointment with ourselves. But in Christ Jesus, we have been recreated as masterpieces, as what God originally intended for us to be. And the hope of the gospel is that that transformation is possible in each and every one of our lives. And so that call to be transformed is what we talked about last week. We also hit on, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this this week, that salvation is not just about what happens to us when we die. This is something that over the last year and a half even for our church, as we've talked about the the scripture, the Bible, and the story of the Bible, it's not that escaping hell is not a part of the gospel, but the gospel or salvation is about the restoration of humanity. It's about God about humans becoming who God originally intended them to be, to give glimpses of what heaven is like here on earth. That's what God always designed for people, even when he created Adam and Eve. And so it's living out that original design. Um, Derwin Gray, Gray is an author, and he wrote a book called The Good Life. And I love how he pieces this all together. And so this is kind of a lengthy quote, but I really felt like it it put together that perspective as we shift into what we talked about last week with this week. And so he writes this, let's start at the beginning. All of humanity is made in God's image. Adam, Eve, and all their children were made to be image bearers throughout creation, displaying displaying God's glory, goodness, and wisdom. God's image bearers were to multiply and populate the earth with his image by living lives of confidence and reliance on him. The environment of heaven was to cover the earth through their partnership with God. In fact, earth was to be a mini version of God's realm. The Garden of Eden was God's temple. Adam and Eve and their offspring were to be God's priests. As they bore children and multiplied God's image, the temple garden would spread to cover all of creation, and God's kingdom reign would cover everything that existed. Adam and Eve were animated when God breathed divine life into them and sustained this life with the tree of life. As Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, they showed their confidence and reliance on God himself. He was their source and purpose. He promised to sustain their life and give them purpose, and they promised to obey God by relying on him, cultivating the garden and multiplying his image. God created his children to be like him. This is important. He created them to be like him 
But the only way they could be like him was to rely on him, not to oppose him by living independent from him. When Adam and Eve chose to become like God, even though they already were, knowing good and evil, hell flooded earth and has been drowning humanity ever since. Every hurt, every pain, every ugly form of human behavior had its origin in the garden. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned, Romans 5.12. Adam and Eve's eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was an act of rebellion. It was the most vicious form of pride, saying, God, I don't need you. Sin is so much more than I did something bad. Sin is renouncing our birthright to reign in God's kingdom for the sake of pursuing our own pitiful little kingdoms. Darkness entered the world when humanity failed to realize that the good life was already theirs, placed at their fingertips by God. They abandoned the glory of truly being like God, made in his likeness, because they wanted to be God. Tempted by an animal over whom they should have had dominion, they became like animals. We can't be poor in spirit when we're seeking to rule ourselves. We can't live the good life when we're wrapped in our own sinfulness. Instead of ruling with God, we are now ruled by sin, death, and the powers of evil. Adam and Eve chose slavery over freedom, and now we are born into slavery, in need of rescuing. We need to be restored to the good life God designed for us. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Romans 5.17. That's the story that God has been telling from the beginning. That was what he wanted, the original creation. That's what Jesus died to restore, for us to be heirs of the promise, to be co-heirs with Christ Jesus, to be the, he was our firstborn among many brothers, for us to live out this commission to bring restoration. Now, will we ever be able to create a utopian society on earth? No. But when Jesus comes back to earth, he will. He will set that up. But for now, you and I can give glimpses of it everywhere we go. We are to be heaven distributors everywhere. That's our calling. And that's where this idea, when we present the gospel message, is just what happens to us in the afterlife, we fall short of what God planned. It's so much more than what happens when we die. It's about what happens when we live. Amen. So over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the goal of spiritual life. And the goal of spiritual life in this chapter, he really, um, John Ortberg wrestles through this false dichotomy that we sometimes have in our culture where we have a sacred life and we have a secular life. So, you know, we go to church and we do our devotions and Jesus sometimes just becomes an add-on. It becomes something to make us a moral or a better group of people. Um, and it's not our entire life. And so this really stems from um, Greek thought this stems from a Gnostic idea where spirit is one spirit is good flesh is bad so anything that's flesh is bad and so um, we we get into this place where 
Um, we just try to, we live two different lives or two different worlds, and we don't try to bring them together. Like when we go to an art museum with our, our spouse or our significant other, we're not like there. That's not a spiritual experience. That's a secular experience. False. There is no such thing as sacred and secular divide. There is nothing where God's rule and reign should not permeate our lives. Everything about us should be his. We should be totally surrendered to him. The transformation that we talked about last week sometimes becomes a pseudo-transformation where we focus more on external things, and that's the danger, than we do on the inner transformation that God wants to do in our hearts. He introduces us in the, the chapter to a guy by the name of Cranky Hank, who no one is surprised that after years of serving Jesus, Hank is no longer um, bitter or cantankerous or angry or um, just short-tempered. Like, he, he's kind of mean and he's rude. And no one in the church is surprised by that. We, we would think that after 20 or 25 years of serving Jesus that our demeanor would change, that we would actually develop the fruit of the Spirit. But we tend in church circles to focus on external things more than we do the inner transformation of the heart. That's the danger. He talks about a pastor who, it's okay for that pastor to be greedy or gluttonous or proud, but if that pastor would stand outside of the church and smoke a cigarette after the service on Sunday, he wouldn't be around for the Sunday night service. And it's, the danger here is that we look at some of these externals and then we think, well, yeah, we can participate in some of those externals, they're not bad. And that's not the point that John is trying to make in the, in, the, in the chapter. And some people will try to twist his words, or they'll try to twist the words of Scripture to give us what we desire. Like we try to twist it so that we can participate in anything that we want. And both of these are errors. We don't want to just focus on the external behaviors that need to quote-unquote change in our lives. We don't, neither do we just want to avoid focusing on the external changers. But when Jesus enters the scene, he comes to talk about the heart. The heart. And the transformation that needs to happen in our hearts. When I look at the, the way that our culture has developed over the last couple years over the last many years, um, I think a lot of it stems from that sacred-secular divide. That idea that, you know, I do my morning devotions, but the rest of my day is mine. I give my tithe, but the other 90% is all for me. Um, and it, it's not that we begin our Christian lives this way, but this is somehow what becomes our lives, where we we don't bring Christ into the center of our lives. And so it's wrong to smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do, but it's okay if I'm rude to my waitress because she was slow, or it's okay if, I'm, uh, if I have pride because it's a good kind of pride, like American pride or pride in my work ethic or pride in that sense. And, uh, and there's this false dichotomy that we create, and Jesus is not any less pleased with pride than he is with the sexuality that is rampant in our culture today. He wants to deal with both of them. He wants to transform our hearts from the inside out. And if we make it our goal just to change our external behavior, we may miss the change of heart that he's trying to get. But if you go for the change of heart that he's trying to get, the externals will begin to take care of themselves. A lot of times when we look at the Bible, 
we, we treat it like a moral guide for our life. And I want to be careful how, how I process this. And, I, and please, if you hear something that you're like, wow, did he really say that? Pick up the phone and call me and make sure that's what I said before you um, go to Facebook and tell the world that I'm this crazy heretic. Um, because we treat the Bible, you've, you've heard the phrase, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. And I think that does a great disservice to what the Bible is. The Bible is God's revelation of who he is, how he deals with mankind, and it's his plan of redemption and restoration for humankind. It's from beginning to end that story. And all of it is not this literal, factual, textbook type of material. But in our Western world, we try to treat the Bible as if all of it is literal and scientific, and it, it, there's no poetry, there's no uh, uh, apocalyptic scripture. There's, it's all just black and white and it's this way. And the danger of that is we try to force the Bible to be something that it's really not being, and then we have to do these mental gymnastics when we get pushed into a place where it doesn't make sense. And we actually keep people from understanding what creation or what God was trying to communicate to us through his word. For example, we, we like to argue about creation. Um, there's, if you didn't know this, there's all these debates about creation, whether creation was a literal seven-day period or whether it was actually this gap period or whether, you know, what, what really happened with creation. And here's the point. God is the creator and sustainer of all life. Period. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter if it literally happened the way that it, it says that it happened in the Bible. That doesn't make the Bible less true. And we get hung up on things and we try to make it actually fit something that it doesn't necessarily need to fit. And then people have problems with whether there are talking animals or not, or whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale, or whether this person was a real person, or whether it was a figurative thing. It doesn't matter. The truth of Scripture remains unchanged. And if we would actually study the culture that the, the book was written in and who it was written to and we would understand what God is trying to communicate and that truth is all that matters. That's all that matters. So when we come to the Bible as law, the way we view law is different than the way that those back in the Bible day would have viewed law. In fact, the word law, many times, is the word Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's many times in our Bible translated law. But it's also the word instruction. It's also the word for teaching. It's really about God's covenant with his people. And the law, if you remember, was given at Mount Sinai. God revealed to Moses not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the law, all of the things. Moses wasn't around at creation. Did you, did you know that? So whatever Moses wrote in Genesis about creation, he got on Mount Sinai. Or he somehow wrote as a revelation of God being the creator and the sustainer of the entire world. And he wrote it so people would know who God is and what his plan of redemption is for his people. Then God brings his people out, his people. They're already his people because he's made a covenant with Abraham. He brings them out of slavery, not because of anything they did, but because of what he did. He brings them out. He brings them to Mount Sinai, to himself, and he makes a covenant with them. 
He brings them to this mountain. He calls them to be a kingdom of priests who put him on display, who bring God and man together. And then he establishes a priesthood within the priesthood to model what the priesthood looks like, much like he intended for Adam and Eve. What you may not know about the the things that are happening at Mount Sinai is it's an exact replica of a Jewish wedding ceremony. So what God is doing is he's marrying the nation of Israel, bringing them into a covenant with himself. They will now be his bride, his people. And the Ten Commandments are really just wedding vows that God makes to people. Now, why is this important? This is important, I think, because when we think about our wedding vows, the wedding vows that I made with my wife are not just things that I have to do um, in order to, you know, keep my vows. They're not just law. My wedding vows are the means to live in a flourishing relationship with my spouse. The goal is to live in a flourishing relationship with my spouse. The goal is not to fulfill the letter of the law of all of my vows. The goal for my marriage is to not get to the end of my life and to have never committed adultery. That's not the goal. However, adultery would be bad. It would kill the relationship, and the relationship would not flourish. But I could get to the end of my life and never have committed adultery and not have a flourishing relationship with my spouse. And when we view the law, when we view the Torah, the way that God views the Torah, when we treat it as if there's a a thing that I have to keep in order to maintain a relationship with God, let me remind you, you didn't do anything to get into relationship with God, and you can't do anything to keep the relationship with God. It's all on His end. But that doesn't mean the law is not important. It is if we want to live in a flourishing relationship with Him and be His priests putting him on display on the earth. So when the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says to us, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When, when I read that in my church upbringing, do not conform to the pattern of this world, I think of the sinful worldly things that I'm supposed to avoid. I'm not supposed to listen to secular music. I'm not supposed to, to smoke. I'm not supposed to drink. I'm not supposed to chew. I'm not supposed to do, I'm look at bad things on the internet. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not, the boundary markers, and for all of us, the boundary markers that he, John talks about in chapter 2 are going to be different depending on how you were raised, where you were raised, how long you've been in church. There are all different. Some of you never played with cards. You play rook. Do you know why you play rook? Because playing cards were of the devil. And it was okay in the assemblies of God circles to play rook because those cards were not of the devil. That's the truth. That's what happened. That's the, the boundary marker. And when we, fo- and it, again, it's not that these things are not important. But when we make the boundary markers the foundation of our relationship with God, or when we make avoiding hell the foundation of our relationship with God, we miss out on everything that really matters. You know, there's so much in the Torah that talks about deliberately leaving parts of your field untouched. And if you're a farmer and you just 
decide, hey, I'm not going to plow up parts of my fields. That's, that's an economic problem. I mean, in our culture, we plow everything. We've, we harvest everything. We don't waste. But what God wanted his people to realize is, I'm your provider. You don't have to plow everything, and you don't have to harvest everything. I'll provide for you. You leave that for the poor that can't provide for themselves because I want you to know what's in my character. And that commandment is just as important to God as do not commit adultery. We have this idea that God is so displeased with America because of the homosexuality and gender issues that are happening in our culture right now, but he's okay with the pride and the gossip and the slander that exist in his church. Or it's not as bad. It's all bad. He doesn't like any of it. None of it reflects his nature. None of it reflects who he is. And when we get into these boundary marker lists, not only do we start to think, that we're doing good and the people out there are doing bad and we lose a sense of mercifulness in the mercy that God has bestowed upon us, we start creating lists of what it means to conform to the world and that's not what God means at all. He means do it His way. Trust His will, all of it, all of it, so that you can test and approve what is God's good, pleasing and perfect will. If we back up one verse to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything, every part of my life is his in view of his mercy. What does that mean? It means that coming into relationship with God is dependent upon God's mercy. Me staying in relationship with God is dependent upon God's mercy because I can never keep the list good enough. Never can. And so it's dependent upon his mercy. And lest, again, you want to walk out today and say, well, that means I can do whatever I want to do. No, because I've given my life to him. He's in control. He's in charge. And I'm not going to get into the same trap that Adam and Eve got into to think maybe I know better than him. I want to be transformed from the inside out. That is our worship of God. That's our spiritual act of worship. Every part of my life is worship. The song service is not worship. I mean, I actually believe at one point in my life, I may have actually made this statement where I said, you know, if you have a hard time standing for 30 minutes in worship, you won't want to go to heaven because that's what we're going to do for all eternity is worship Jesus. As if Heaven is just going to be a a song service. No, that's a narrow definition of worship. Heaven is going to be what God designed earth to be. Us multiplying, us taking care of his creation. That's worship to God. Taking care of God's creation is worship. You doing your job, you caring for your children, that's worship. Worship is not reading the Bible, praying and singing songs to Jesus. Yes, those are also worship. Worship is every part of my life being His. When we narrow the definition of worship, when we narrow the definition of sin, when we narrow the definition of the gospel, this is where we get ourselves into trouble and we, we lock ourselves into these lists that were never intended to be there. And we settle for a pseudo-transformation. I'm doing pretty good because I, I keep all of these laws. Remember the rich man that came to Jesus and he said, hey, 
What do I have to do to enter life? We translate that, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And we, we assume he means go to heaven when he dies, and that's not what he means. Because for the Jew in the first century, going to heaven when you die wasn't even part of the equation. Entering the kingdom and entering life is what he's talking about. So th- what God has intended for mankind to rule and reign with him on the earth, how do I enter the kingdom? How do I enter life? How, and Jesus says, you keep the commandments. And he has. He has a list. I've kept them all. But Jesus gets to the heart. What's the heart? Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Does that mean that for you and I, we have to sell all of our possessions and give to the poor in order to enter life? No, it means that God's after the heart. And you can create a list and pretend and make it look like you're obeying God and serving God. But if you really come to him, he'll put his finger on that one thing you won't let go of. That one relationship you won't seek restoration in. That one thing that you're holding back on. But hey, got 15 over here, 15 to 1. And we would never say this out loud, but this is how many of us live. As if God is okay that I'm, I'm holding on to this one area of sin because it's not as bad as these 15. Aren't you glad for the mercy of God? Yeah, yeah. So today, you should not walk out feeling condemned and like, oh, I'll never measure up. Right, that's the point. But God wants to transform us from the inside out so that we can show what heaven is like here on earth. We have to recognize that I'm naked, I'm covered with shame, I'm covered with guilt and sin and pride, and I need to clothe myself, the ways Romans 13, 14 says, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the desires of the flesh could be sexual immorality, or the desires of the flesh could be proving my point and letting everyone know I'm right. It could be both of those. I don't want to think about either one because I want to live for him and for his kingdom. And here's the kicker. We fight against this. But if we actually lived like this, this is how we were created to live, we would actually flourish and thrive. But we don't believe it because we're marred by sin. We believe we have to protect ourselves. We believe we have to defend ourselves. We believe we have to do all of these things. We believe we have to to do it ourselves, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and just do it. And we don't trust what God has said. In the same way that Adam and Eve struggled to trust that God was not withholding from them. When we think of just our eternal destination, that's a poor motivator for salvation. It does produce change, but I think it produces the boundary marker type of change. It produces the minimal change. Can I live this way and still make it to heaven? Instead of asking the question, does living this way make my relationship with God flourish and make him known on the earth? Does this reflect who God is? The gospel is repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is near. And so you and I need to make sure as we go through these next two weeks that we're not focusing on just the boundaries of salvation, but that we're focusing on the heart of salvation, that we are after the transformation of the inner man. Because this is where the Pharisees come from. Listen, one last thing I want to cover for today, and then we're going to pick up here next week. Because next week we're going to look at the Pharisees. And a lot of us look at the Pharisees and we read them as bad people. 
the Pharisees were not bad people. They didn't even start out as bad people. There's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament called the silent years that we don't have in our Bible. If you notice, there's no, nothing in the Bible from where the Pharisees came from. The Pharisees aren't in the law. There's no Pharisees in the law. There were priests, but the Pharisees aren't priests. Those are the Sadducees. So where did the Pharisees come from? Well, if you study Jewish history and you study that 400 years, when they come back from captivity, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra's a priest. He comes back from captivity and he devotes himself to study and to the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws. So the people of Israel come out of captivity and they realize they don't want to go back there. They realize they've neglected the law of God, the Torah. They have not lived up to the covenant that God made with them as his people. That's why he put them into captivity. So they don't want to go back there. So they have Pharisees. They have teachers of the law. They have synagogues. At the synagogue, every week they're going to come together to study the Torah together, to study it in community, to make sure they keep it, to make sure that they don't go back into captivity. And so they, they develop this system where they're going to memorize the Torah, where they're going to study the Torah, where they're going to grow in the Torah. And this happens over this 400-year period. And then as they begin to do this, they begin to have the oral traditions of the law. They begin to add things to the Torah. Well, this must mean this, so we got to add this, and we got to do this. Because they're afraid, instead of flourishing in the covenant that God has for them, what they've done is they've tried to make sure they don't go back into captivity. It sounds a whole lot like, I want to make sure I don't go to hell when I die, rather than, I want to live in a flourishing relationship with God and put him on display however he is, everywhere, in every relationship, in everything I do. In the book of Nehemiah, it showed to us this way. The people, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. This is what Ezra's doing. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the the law, the words of Torah, the covenant. The people realized, hey, we were in captivity because we broke covenant with God. I mean, they're not just reading the commandments. They're reading Torah. They're reading creation. They're reading Abraham. They're reading all of it. And they're realizing God made a covenant with us to be his people, to put him on display. We broke that. And it starts so good. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus coming along saying to the Pharisees, you blind guides. You you get converts, but you make them twice the son of hell as you. I mean, how is it possible to be a people who memorize all of the Scripture and go to synagogue day week after week after week and yet be a son of hell? How is that possible? Because rather than focus on the heart of the law and being the people of God, putting Him on display, they once again focused on the boundaries, the externals, and making sure they didn't go back into captivity. And next week, we're going to look at what John brings out in the chapter, these Pharisees and how how Jesus pulls them. And we're going to give specific ways that we can make sure that as we go through this journey of transformation, that we don't settle for the pseudo-transformation. 
we don't settle for just the, the boundary issues, but that we, we allow God to do the deep work that he wants to do in our hearts. And I'd encourage you, if you have a copy of the book, read the chapter this week, but there's a study guide in the back. And I'd encourage you to, to ponder the questions that John gives us, to study the scriptures, the extra scriptures that he gives us. And I want you, as you go through this week, to begin to pray, God, show me my heart. Did you know that the scripture says that the, the heart of man is just, deceitful. It's desperately wicked. And just reading the Bible every day and going through the religious motions and attending church every week isn't a guarantee that our hearts are going to be transformed. Just taking a scripture or the Ten Commandments and putting them on our our mirror and every day making sure that we follow all the Ten Commandments isn't going to assure that I'm walking in a flourishing relationship with God. And so, as we close today, here's what I want us to do. I want us to, I want you to, to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes where you are. And I want to give you an opportunity, if you're in this room, I never want to assume that everyone that's here um, has taken a step to follow Jesus. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's design for us. We've all gone our own way. And yet, what Christ has done for us by his coming to earth, by his living a sinless life, by his death and his burial and his resurrection, he's made it possible for us to be brought back into relationship with God. If we will repent, if we will admit that we've gone our own way, that we are living for our own kingdom and not for the kingdom of God, and that we need the sacrifice of Jesus in what he's done for us, God has promised if we do that, he will send his spirit to live in us. So literally, he's putting heaven on the inside of us. And so if you're in this room today and you've never done that, you've never admitted to God that you've broken his law, you've never admitted to him that you've broken his standard, and you want to make yourself right with him today by putting trust in what Jesus has done for you, I want you to raise your hand and say, I want to do that. That's the decision I want to make today. I've never done that in my life. I want to do that today. Is there anyone in this room that that's your desire? All right, I'm going to assume then that we've done that. And so here's my prayer for us this week. I want us to pray over this next moment as we close, and I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to ask you, as we did last week, to put your hands out in front of you in this receiving posture. And I'm going to pray a prayer for us as a body that God this week would reveal to us every area of our hearts, that he would show us the ways that, that, he would show us the ways that we've committed ourselves to him or the ways that maybe we've held back from him. And so, Father, we, we come before you this morning grateful for your mercy, grateful that when we were your enemies, you came to this earth and you gave yourself for us. Thank you when we couldn't come to you, you came to us. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. That, God, we are not made right because of our own works, and we're not kept because of our works. We're kept because of the blood of Jesus Christ for us. Thank you for bringing us into this covenant relationship that you made with Abraham all those years ago. And Holy Spirit, as we go through this week, 
I pray that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds to see the areas of our lives where maybe we've settled for pseudo-transformation, where maybe we've created lists, where we've created boundary markers, and we're not allowing you to do the transforming work in our inner man that you desire to do. So help us to yield ourselves more fully to you. Over these next few weeks, I pray that you would bring things to the surface in our lives, that you would bring things in, in, in your word to the forefront of our minds, and give us the grace that we need to surrender ourselves more fully to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, Again, I would encourage you to stop by the table out in the lobby. There's a lot of information that's available to you out there. Uh, There are copies of the books. The offering baskets are there as well. And then when you're ready to be dismissed, God bless you as you go.